Well, good evening. Welcome back to uh, Centerpoint and the School of Theology. We've just sung uh, what is one of my favorite hymns, uh, Jesus, the very thought of thee, uh, with sweetness fills my breast. This is uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, the 12th, 11th, 12th century um, mystic and uh, theologian. Uh, of whom John Calvin was greatly enamored, uh, cites him uh, almost, almost as much as anyone else, maybe not as much as Augustine, but, uh, but he was very fond of the theology, uh, the pastoral theology of Bernard of Clairvaux. And we normally sing it just uh, five verses. Actually, there are a dozen or more verses uh, in the hymn. Uh, and I picked out one of them in particular that uh, isn't in our hymn book because it ends uh, with this uh, prayer and ever in our lives express the image uh, of thine own uh, to express the image of God uh, which is our theme this evening man created in the image of God now I need to explain and uh, justify a little uh, of the methodology Uh, you'll remember that uh, A few weeks ago we did two sessions on creation, uh, one dealing with the issue of um, the views of creation and the age of the earth and all of of those things, and then secondly we we focused in particular on uh, the creation of man, and then we went off uh, on a tangent on the providence of God, and now we're coming back to the creation of man and the image of God. The two on creation and providence are all looking at it from the perspective of God. These are things God did. Uh, These are the creative acts of God and the overall sovereign providence of God. These providence of God sort of ends the entire section dealing with God. And and here this evening uh, we make somewhat of a transition, a segue now into anthropology. Uh, We were sort of teasing anthropology when we were dealing with creation, but we were dealing with it from the perspective of God. Here, in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, we are are really focusing on man and the nature of man. And uh, in uh, the theological uh, library, as it were, we have moved from a consideration of the doctrine of God to a consideration of the doctrine of man. So this evening without making too much of a fuss about it, uh, we are beginning a section that will uh, concern us for the rest of this semester, uh, anthropology. Uh, And we begin tonight with uh, this issue of the imago Dei, or the image of God. So let's start with some biblical considerations and uh, uh, some, some pivotal texts of scripture uh, from which we derive this, uh, this doctrine. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And you'll notice a couple of things. First of all, the use of two words, image and likeness. 
And uh, we're going to ask in a minute, are those two different things or are they synonyms? Uh, You'll notice that when it comes to the uh, second half of that uh, text, uh, the, the bit that looks like poetry... Uh, and, and not written as, uh, as prose, verse 27, you'll notice uh, that it no longer uses image and likeness, but simply image, and that might be significant in a minute. Uh, notice uh, that this is uh, a statement with regard to the creation of man. Uh, we might translate that today as humankind, although that sounds a little old-fashioned now. Uh, but man in the sense of male and female, Uh, Not man in the sense of maleness, but man in the sense of humanity. Uh, Male and female, he created them. So both male and female then uh, bearing this image, this likeness of God. And then Genesis 5, and the significance here is that you've moved from before the fall to after the fall. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is before the fall. Genesis 5... Uh, is after the fall. This is the book of the generations of Adam. It's beginning a new section in Genesis. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So looking back to Genesis 1, 26, 27. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created, or we might say today named them human uh, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years... He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now you can read that uh, on the surface and what on the surface what that's saying, what that is saying is that Seth looked like Adam. You know, just like uh, when you have a a newborn baby and uh, it's always the correct thing to say the baby looks like the mother even if you think this baby doesn't remotely look like the mother uh, that's always the correct thing to say Um, uh, and I think on the surface that's what that is saying Seth looked like Adam which gives you a kind of insight into what likeness and image might mean uh, a look-alike uh, that, that Adam and Eve were lookalikes of God. Now, that doesn't take you very far, uh, because all kinds of questions now arise, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, but I do think we're given a clue as to what image and likeness means uh, when we're told that Seth bore the image and likeness of his father, Adam. We would say, And I'm not sure where this comes from. We would say, he is the spitting image of. And I'm not sure where that expression comes from. And I'm not sure I want to know. Um, But uh, that, that, I think, on the surface is what Genesis 5 is saying. And then in Genesis 9, this is at the time of the flood. Uh, This is before the flood. This is the pre-Diluvian period, if you want to be precise. Uh, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now that's significant for a number of uh, reasons. One, it is the Bible's justification for capital punishment. Capital punishment, that is, in the case of the murder of a fellow human being, not of the killing of a human being. There are, there are times when the killing of a human being is just. Uh, in, in war, for example, or self-defense, uh, there, were, there were cases, legal cases in the Old Testament that justified that. But this is in the case of the violence that preceded and actually warranted the judgment of the flood, 
justifying uh, capital punishment. Um, but the reason murder is such, a, is such a crime that warrants capital punishment is because the victim, and the victim may be a scoundrel, right? the, the victim may well be a scoundrel, but if the victim is murdered, he, the one who has been murdered, even though he's a scoundrel, is in the image of God. And, and that is deeply significant in terms of the question, does man retain the image of God after the fall? And Genesis, uh, Genesis uh, 5 and especially Genesis 9, uh, because we're not told here uh, that this is the murder of a believer, but simply the murder of a human being. Uh, and that human being may be a scoundrel, but he still bears the image of God. So that verse is terribly significant in answering the question, does fallen humanity still bear the image of God? So let's ask some of these uh, interesting questions, and we won't, uh, we won't be detained by some of them. Uh, image and likeness, is that one idea or two? Uh, the idea that it's two has largely been fostered not so much by the Hebrew text as by the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, uh, what, uh, what we call the Septuagint, because it adds something in the Greek, and it adds, uh, it adds an and or a kai, uh, image and likeness. Uh, and the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, uh, Jerome's uh, Latin edition uh, of the Old Testament also suggested two distinct meanings. Now, I'm going to argue in a minute that that is not present in the Hebrew, uh, and therefore this is a problem um, that has evolved uh, because of the issue of lost in translation, if I can borrow a phrase. Um, not that I've seen the movie, I want to add, just in case it's not a movie I should be mentioning here. I have no idea what, it, what it's about. Uh, I just know the title. Uh, early church fathers, um, Irenaeus, Tertullian, suggested image refers to the physical and likeness refers to the spiritual. Uh, that sounds kind of fancy and, uh, and, and as though that could take you places. Um, actually, there's no warrant for it whatsoever in the Hebrew text, I don't think. And then uh, further on down the historical line, uh, Clement, uh, Origen, Athanasius, Ambrose, Augustine, these are big names, suggested that image represents man as man and therefore uh, an essential part of humanity and therefore could not be lost uh, because of uh, sin. Uh, and likeness represents non-essential qualities, uh, qualities like righteousness and holiness uh, that, that is lost at the, f at the fall, so man retains the image but loses the likeness. Uh, medieval uh, theologians viewed image as referring to intellectual properties, uh, properties like reason and, uh, and, and volitional freedom uh, properties, the, the, the will, for example. Much of that derived, I think, from uh, the influence of Aristotle on the medieval period uh, and likeness to uh, holiness and righteousness, taking uh, what uh, Ambrose and uh, Augustine had said a, a little step further. And that, of course, has huge influence on Roman Catholic thought and theology, uh, insisting that at the fall, the image was retained, but the likeness was lost. And that, that becomes kind of stamped 
in 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 um, uh, I'm losing the metaphor, but uh, but it's it's etched in stone uh, in uh, medieval Catholic uh, thought. So the reformers, uh, Luther, Calvin, Beza, and so on, uh, were dealing very much with that issue uh, in Roman Catholic thought. Now all of that, of course, having having been derived from a bad translation of the Hebrew text, basically. Uh, Luther and Calvin uh, argued for synonymity, that uh, image and likeness meant the same thing. And let's be absolutely clear here, the reason why Luther and Calvin argued for synonymity is that Luther and Calvin are reading not the Septuagint and not the Vulgate, but they're actually reading the Hebrew text. The Reformation was a Renaissance movement back to the, you know, ad fontes, back to the sources. And one of the things that happened at the Reformation was to go back to reading and translating and and exegeting the original text, the Hebrew text, the Greek text. And that's uh, that's fundamentally important. That's why our theological students uh, in here this evening are painfully studying Greek and Hebrew. Uh, Because it's important that you study the language in which the Bible was given by God. Because errors can develop uh, in translation. And that was part of the message uh, of the Reformation. The Hebrew suggests their synonyms. Uh, Note how in Genesis 9... Uh, this is the pre-Diluvian uh, uh, capital punishment passage, simply employs the one word image. Uh, God made man, uh, if you turn back to Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Uh, just using the one, uh, the one word. Uh, James 3.9 assumes that the image is retained. Uh, With it, and uh, James is talking about the tongue here, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. People, not not saints, you understand, not Christians, not those who are regenerate and renewed, um, but simply people. Uh, People, people, whether they're Christians or non-Christians here, fallen uh, people. Uh, fallen people, fallen humanity who are made in the likeness of God, using, uh, using one word here, uh, again. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, 7, a passage that we read, I think, last week or the week before, a very difficult passage about head covering, not quite sure what Paul is talking about. Um, I, I'm, you know, it's on my list, bucket list to ask Paul when I see him in heaven, what in the world were you talking about at the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians 11? Um, but it's very clear what he means here, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Um, man, uh, man, even after the fall, retaining the image uh, and glory uh, of God. Now, what is the meaning of, uh, granted then that they are synonyms, image and likeness, what is the meaning, and from now on I'll just use the word image, uh, what, what do we mean when we say man is created uh, in the image of God? What, in, in what does the image of God consist? Now, um, I, I'm not going to go into this in any great detail, uh, just to give you a little, a little taste of how complex all of this can get. 
Um, Calvin and others uh, talked about the imago Dei, the image of God, using two different categories of thought, a broad category and a, and a narrow uh, category. And if you turn the page to the little, uh, the little um, uh, what is that? That's a, it's not a box, a grid, a table, thank you. I'm so glad you came this evening. Um, it's been a long day. Uh, this is a table. Um, but in this table, you'll notice uh, on the one hand, you've got broad, sometimes some theologians use the word structural, not terribly helpful. Some theologians use the word formal, a little more helpful. Uh, and on the other side, narrow, functional, and material. Now, I, I'm, I'm simply trying to collate different theologians have used different terms but all all I think that is important here is to say that that people have have spoken about broad categories and narrower categories. Some categories which which are essential to man as man and some categories that do reflect the image of God that can be lost at the fall. But what is important to understand here is that these theologians want to say that not all of the image of God is lost. That, that, that those essential qualities are still retained. So you can still speak of fallen man as bearing the image of God, even if fallen man doesn't bear the image of God to the same extent or to the same fullness as somebody who has been renewed in Christ and who is indwelt by the Spirit, where that image is, is uh, restored uh, and rejuvenated uh, in a sense. Now, underneath that table, uh, I suggest a couple of things here. Some have pointed out that it is better to speak of man uh, being the image. Man is the image rather than has uh, or bears the image. He is the image. Uh, underlining the fact that the, that the image of God is something that is essential to the very definition and being of man. Uh, we said, I think a couple of weeks ago, that it is, some, it is better to say that man is a soul rather than to say that man has a soul. Man is a soul. That's what he is. It's, it's part of his essential being. So that, uh, so that he cannot lose, that, lose his soul and still, and still be a human uh, being. He has an immortal soul. It's part of his identity. Well, similarly with the image uh, of God. Um, man would not be man if he were not the image of God. He is the image of God in the fact that he is man. Uh, this is a statement from Karl Barth. Uh, and, and one I think that is quite correct. Um, that man, man as man uh, uh, here. Uh, then uh, some have used the metaphor of a mirror. Um, Alec Matir, one of the, one of the great uh, scholars of our time, Old Testament scholars of our time. Uh, we can feel the scandal, he says, of the idea the words convey by translating, let us make man in our form and shape or in, in our image and likeness as, let us make a look-alike. He, he's saying as a, as a Hebrew scholar that it would be perfectly okay to translate, let us make man in our, in our image after our likeness, Translate that as saying, let us make a look-alike. So that Adam and Eve, in some way, in some form, in some fashion, was a, was a little look-alike of God. 
He, he has certain characteristics that are, that, that, sh- that are shared with Almighty God. Uh, we, holiness, for example, is a quality that man has. God is holy. Man in Christ is holy. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a quality that is shared uh, by both. Uh, so there's a sense in which the, the imago is a, is, a little, is a little mirroring effect, uh, saying as, as though every man... You know, if you, if you pick up a, a piece of uh, electronics in front of you, on the back of it, it'll say made in China, uh, pr- probably. Um, uh, and and you, may, you, may, you may fall on the floor if it actually does say made in the USA, but it's probably going to say made in China. It's as though somewhere stamped in your DNA, as it were, in your very being, is made by God. It's stamped into your very being. Um, uh, note to Ephesians, 2, 20, uh, Ephesians 4, 24 and Colossians 3, 10. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God. And then it goes on to explain that in true righteousness and holiness. So likeness, the image of God is righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3.10, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So you've got righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. Those, those three explain the image of God. Some of you will know your shorter catechism, question 10 uh, employing uh, what some have called a restoration hermeneutic. Uh, we'll, we'll pass over that. Um, Shorter Catechism, God created man, male and female, after his own image in, and the three words, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, simply bringing together Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, uh, with dominion over the creatures. Now let's expand on this a little more. Uh, we're asking the question, what does the image of God mean? Or, or in what does the image of God consist? Now does it consist in the physical shape of man? Uh, look at the next one, posture. Right? There, are, there are some uh, who say that... Man in his posture, right, he's not stooped over, he's not like an orangutan with his knuckles, uh, uh, you know, walking on his, on his knuckles, uh, bent over, but that man is upright and therefore uh, reflects by his uprightness. I don't know what my friend Al here thinks of this, uh, who has studied this issue in great depth, but uh, um, that the very upright posture is a reflection of God, uh, that he's made by God, that he's different from the creation uh, around him. Um, I, I think there's some, there's some danger here uh, on, the, on the physical side. God isn't physical. Uh, so, so the physical nature of man cannot be a reflection of the image of God because God isn't physical. God has no body. God is a spirit. Uh, and we mustn't think of him in our image as, as though he were some kind of enlarged uh, man, uh, a celestial giant having body and organs, hands and feet, 
uh, intellectual problems and emotional vulnerabilities and differing from us only in his size and resourcefulness and freedom from certain limitations of time and space. God is ineffable and impassable and so on. This is a quotation from Jim Packer. Um, so there are some problems, I think, if, in, in saying that the image of God consists in our physical shape. So I'm, I'm, I'm dismissing that. Um, Sexuality. Uh, um, you remember that in uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where it speaks of image and likeness, it speaks of the creation of man as male and female. Uh, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And, and there are some, Karl Barth, for example, uh, is one, who, who have suggested that the maleness and femaleness, that the difference that the sexual difference between men and women is a reflection of the image uh, of uh, God. Um, Could anything be more obvious, Karl Barth says, to which I think I would reply, yes, almost anything. Um, uh, because, because God isn't a sexual being and I think that uh, this, is, this is an area down which you do not want to go uh, this is that the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is one of communion and fellowship but it's not a sexual relationship uh, in any way and, I, and I, 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 I think this is an error to go down this, uh, this uh, road now, to be fair to Karl Barth um, he insists that the analogy is one of relationship and not being. So he's strictly speaking not saying that God uh, is sexual, male and female, uh, that somehow God is both male and female. That's not what he's saying. Um, But he is saying in the way that male and female, or marriage, if you like, that Adam and Eve as a couple related to each other, that they were in communion with each other, they were in fellowship with each other. That is a reflection of God in communion with himself, the Father and the Son and the Spirit in, in, do you remember the words? Perichoresis, circumincessio. There's a pop quiz coming, folks. You need to study these things. Um, Perichoresis, the, the fellowship, the intimacy of the communion between the Father and the Son, that is reflected in the fellowship and communion that exists, that exists in marriage between, between a husband and a wife. And, and, and that, there may be something in that, that, um, that the image of God consists in fellowship, in partnership, in communion, uh, in relationship. We are, we are beings of relationship. Well... But animals have relationship too. Uh, they, form, they form lifelong bonds. Uh, geese, you know those Canadian geese that you despise and, and think of and make a mess everywhere. But you know they make lifelong partners. They mate for life. Um, so, so it's, you know, if, if we're looking for the image of God as that which is distinctive from the rest of creation, does, does relationship make that sufficiently distinctive from the created realm and, and I think not uh, how about self-consciousness you know man is self-conscious and uh, the beasts uh, of the field are not really uh, I, I read all this stuff in uh, th- theological textbooks these people definitely did not have pets um, uh, they definitely did not own a dog 
or a cat. If, if ever there was a being that was self-aware, it is a cat. <laughs> they are aware that they are not you, and your role in life is to bow down and worship them. Um, you know, pets can demonstrate something that looks like self-awareness. They can be guilty. If I say to my dog, what have you been eating? I mean, he immediately begins to cower, and his eyes look as if he's guilty, even if he hasn't eaten anything. Um, is self-consciousness uniquely human? Uh, there are certainly profound theologians who insist that that is the case. I'm, I'm not convinced myself. How about creativity? Um, that the image of God consists in aesthetics, uh, the ability to, to paint, uh, to compose music, to, to write uh, novels and poetry and so on. And, and, you know, sometimes you'll see some of these birds that create the most extraordinary nests to attract a, a mate, and, and, and she comes along and she looks at it and she walks away because it's, it's not attractive enough. So it has to get some more little baubles and feathers and bits of red and blue and, 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 and make it more attractive. Um, is aesthetics a purely human quality that we can say, that's what the image of God is. Man, man has an aesthetic sense and the rest of creation does not. I'm not convinced. Man has more, you know, does a mockingbird compose a sonata in D minor? Obviously not. Uh, but, it, but it has a phenomenal range of ability in mimicking, uh, mimicking songs, for sure. What about love? You know, the distinctive uh, feature of the Imago Dei is, is love. But animals demonstrate love. Um, they can demonstrate grief at the loss of a partner. Actually, they can demonstrate grief at the loss of their owner. Um, does human love, then, with all of its moral and spiritual dimensions, demonstrate a unique quality? So distinctive, so that it suggests that it demonstrates the Imago Dei, and I'm not convinced. What about God consciousness? You know, man alone worships. Though, there's a dog I could show you that looks as though it's guilty of worship. There's more, I think, to God consciousness. We, we certainly are aware of God. We communicate with uh, God in, the, in, a, in a way that the rest of creation does not. I think there's, there's something there. There's more there. Um, what about the exercise of dominion? Do, do you remember, uh, do you remember the, the text um, that uh, uh, they, were, they were told uh, to uh, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion, Genesis 1.26, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and then it goes back to God creates man in his own image and likeness. And uh, if you look at Genesis 1.26 and 27 again on the first page, um, you've, got, uh, you've got image and likeness on the outside and dominion on the inside. And in Hebrew, that would be like an inclusio. It would be like bookends. It's a very Hebrew kind of thing to do, saying that the focus, the meaning of the bookends lies in the middle, and the middle here is a statement about dominion, exercising dominion. 
that's an important issue. God is uh, saying to Adam and Eve, this is where your image lies. This is where my image given to you lies. I want you to exercise dominion. I want you to exercise responsible dominion, moral dominion, ethical dominion, but dominion. You know, we're being told all the time that a man is an intrusion on this planet. You know, that uh, we have no right to, uh, to place our carbon footprint in this planet. Uh, we share this planet with the rest of creation, and we do, and we must share it morally and ethically. But man is given, man is given a mandate here by God to exercise dominion. This, this universe is for mankind. So, so exploration and um, scientific investigation. Uh, what about the use of uh, animals, for example? Mice and uh, rats and rabbits... Uh, for research, uh, for cancer research. Is that ethically justifiable? And I would say on the basis of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, yes it is. It is ethically and morally justifiable so long as it's done in a humane, and not in a cruel way, but in a humane uh, way, but it's part of the exercise of dominion and we should stop apologizing for it. And, 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 and you know me, I love animals, right? I, I love animals. But we, do, we are given here a mandate to exercise dominion. Um, what about uh, sonship? This is a fairly recent idea. Uh, the name of H.D. MacDonald uh, is associated with this idea. Adam was created in the image of God to be a son. Right? He wasn't... Uh, I don't think that we should read Genesis 1 to 3 as though it was saying man has to pass probation and then he becomes a son. I think we should read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as Adam is a son. Even in his probationary state, even before the fall, man is a son. He's a son of God. And that that image means that he bears a unique relationship to God where God is his father and he is a son. So that sonship becomes the part of the essence of the imago Dei. I think that is a lot uh, to say for it. Now, perhaps, I say at the end here, we should view the image of God in man as composed of all of the above in abundance. Not that animals don't possess any of these. Right? The statement that an animal isn't self-aware right, is nonsense at best. Uh, but that humans exceed and excel in posture, moral self-awareness, analytical ability, creativity, aesthetic sensitivity, loving relationships, and so on. Uh, and I think that we should uh, beware of limiting the image of God purely to uh, rational uh, and volitional um, factors uh, alone. And there's a tendency uh, of doing that uh, even, even, in, uh, uh, even in John Calvin, for example. Now, what about uh, after the fall? Does man lose uh, the image of God after the fall? Luther who argued for a synonymous understanding of, the t of uh, image and likeness, uh, added that both were entirely lost at the fall. 
Now that leads Lutheranism to uh, a general disdain. I mean, Lutheranism as a as a as a broad category now and I know that some of you are Lutherans and former Lutherans and I I don't mean this in any personal sense whatsoever this is just a characterization of the history of Lutheranism which has looked fairly suspiciously at the arts and the involvement of Christianity in culture that's been a that's been a trend of Lutheranism Calvinism on the other hand viewed uh, that the image of God wasn't entirely lost that there was still good even in fallen man that he was still capable of reflecting uh, good uh, that he was perfectly capable of creating art uh, and music and so on that could be enjoyed uh, and enjoyed as an expression of the image of God even in fallen humanity Uh, one might conceivably think Uh, That man, I'm quoting here from a contemporary theologian called Huckmer, at the bottom of page 7, one might conceivably think that man after the fall is no longer an image bearer of God and, as we have seen, some theologians have indeed taught this, from the scriptural data, however, it is clear that we ought not to say this. According to the biblical evidence, fallen man is still considered to be an image bearer of God, although other evidence shows that he no longer images God properly and therefore must again be restored to the image of God. Thus, there's a sense in which fallen man is still an image bearer of God, but also a sense in which he must be renewed in that image. We ought not, therefore, to say that the image of God has been totally lost through man's fall into sin. We ought rather to say that the image has been perverted or distorted by the fall, that the image is still there. What makes sin so serious is precisely the fact that man is now using God-given and God-imaging powers and gifts to do things that are an affront to his maker. Now that last sentence is very important. You know, we, we hear again and again when people do bad things, terrible things, they say, you know, I was behaving like an animal. Actually, that's an affront to the animal kingdom because very often they're doing things that even animals wouldn't do. But the fact is they're not just behaving like an animal. They're behaving like God-created image bearers and are therefore morally responsible for their actions. You know, if, if we are nothing but an animal, right, it lessens our moral responsibility. But the Bible won't have that. The Bible says that even fallen humanity is made in the image of God. And when they sin, they sin as image bearers of God and bear the moral responsibility for that. So the implication of this doctrine of the Imago Dei is actually quite profound, Because on the one hand, it establishes the dignity of man, and on the other hand, it establishes the moral responsibility of man. You know, we live in a world of reductionism. Um, Man is nothing but, and fill in the blank. You know, he's nothing but chemicals, he's nothing but uh, chemical reactions, he's nothing but uh, atoms and molecules and and so on. Um, Man is nothing but an animal. An animal at the top of the evolutionary chain, but an animal nevertheless. 
He, he is to share equally this planet with every other living creature, right? And you have uh, uh, the, the radical uh, environmentalists and the green politics and so on that uh, push a certain agenda that suggests that we have no right whatsoever to utilize the environment for the profit and well-being of mankind. Uh, to be sure, that must be done in a moral and ethical way. Sin, then, simply becomes reverting to type, uh, reverting to animal behavior. We're nothing more, B.F. Skinner's famous statement, we're nothing more than the product of our environment. The environment made me do it. The genes made me do it. It's amazing how deterministic the natural man can be, even though would have hives if you were to sit and listen to a lecture on predestination. They are still extremely deterministic. I am nothing but the product of my environment or genes. And that kind of reductionism the Bible will not allow. Even, even fallen man at his worst is an image bearer. I visited... Uh, I visited the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. Some of you have, have been there. Um, in, in New Jerusalem, not the old Jerusalem, New Jerusalem. And there's a, there's a museum. It's a memorial to the Holocaust, to the six million Jews that were uh, gassed and uh, put to death in the Second World War. And it's, uh, it's very hard to describe it in, in a few seconds. Uh, properly, you, you walk into... Uh, a darkened uh, environment uh, you're sort of hemmed in as you walk along and uh, there are just little lights uh, like little stars all around you and uh, there's a recording of names it's an endless recording of names of uh, names of people who have died and, and, it's, and you stand there for 15-20 minutes and listen to these names people who are gassed uh, to death men and women and uh, children and it's, a, it's an incredibly moving experience. Um, but those Nazis who put those Jews to death were image bearers of God. They weren't just, they weren't just behaving like animals. They were image bearers of God. And are morally responsible and therefore culpable for their actions. That's the point of Genesis 9 uh, and capital punishment, that the, the murder of even a scoundrel. He may, he may be a scoundrel that this person has been murdered, but he's an image bearer of God. And you bear responsibility for m maltreatment of another human being made in the image of God. Uh, it has uh, implications for abortion. You know, when does human life begin? When does the imago Dei begin? So that life, the life of a human being uh, in conception is an image bearer of God. So putting, putting to death, uh, aborting fetuses, what, what you're doing is aborting image bearers of God. Um, and then on the other side of the argument, I, I say something about the value of art. Uh, I have a little quotation here from uh, Phil Riken's uh, Art for God's Sake, uh, published a few years ago. Phil Riken, of course, uh, president of Wheaton College, former minister at 10th uh, Presbyterian Church. And this is a very powerful statement that he's making. 
Uh, art has tremendous power to shape culture and touch the human heart. Its artifacts embody uh, the ideas and desires of the coming generation. This means that what is happening in the arts today is prophetic of what will happen in our culture tomorrow. It also means that when Christians abandon the artistic community, we lose a significant opportunity to communicate Christ to our culture. And furthermore, when we settle for trivial expressions of the truth in worship and art, we ourselves are diminished as we suffer a loss of transcendence. That's a, quite a profound statement. What we need to recover or possibly discover for the first time is a full biblical understanding of the arts, not for art's sake, but for God's sake. Then we'll be able to produce better art that more effectively testifies to the truth about God and his grace. The goal is important, not just for artists, but also for everyone else made in God's image and in need of redemption. Now that's, a, that's a, like a prophetic statement to the church about the role of arts and, 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 and the importance that it plays, uh, for sure. Uh, but we can appreciate something of goodness and value and transcendence in um, the music of, uh, uh, let, me, let me throw out Gustav Mahler, uh, who was uh, a, a Jew, became a Roman Catholic because it wasn't uh, PC to be Jew uh, in the time he was uh, living. Uh, I, I think at best uh, he was a nature worshipper uh, at best, but his music is absolutely transcendent uh, if, you, if you're not uh, blown away by the ending of uh, his second or third uh, symphonies uh, you are made of stone you are made of stone, uh, they could write beyond their own understanding because they can't help at the end of the day being image bearers of God and giving testimony to something that lies beyond ourselves and in a sense beyond this universe. It is a reflection uh, of God uh, even, even in an unregenerate uh, heart. Uh, the one true image uh, and uh, it would be uh, very wrong of us not to uh, head in this direction here. Who is the true image bearer of God? Uh, in, a hu in human form and the answer of course is Jesus Christ who is the image of God 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. Colossians 1.15 he is the image of the invisible God uh, this, is a, this is a statement now about his incarnate life his, his, his humanity his, his, his body and soul and mind and will and affections he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature uh, John 12:45. whoever sees me sees him who sent me and, and, and so on now let me close uh, with uh, an exhortation uh, that we should as as renewed um, men and women in Christ, uh, we are charged uh, in expressing this image in its fullness. That's uh, what sanctification means. Growing in grace means expressing the image of God uh, that we bear uh, in, all of its, uh, in all of its faculties, in all of its multidimensional scope here. Uh, that is the aim uh, and the charge of the gospel. The gospel uh, tells us that we are to mirror something of uh, the, the being of God. 
uh, even, even in ourselves. We reflect something of his beauty. We reflect something of his holiness. We reflect something of his, uh, of his greatness uh, in, in who we are and in what we do and in what we, uh, in what we say. Well, there's, uh, there's more, but our time has, uh, has once again uh, flown by. Uh, when we come back uh, in a couple of weeks' time, um, after, after a couple of weeks of break, we'll come back and we'll look at uh, man in revolt, uh, which will be the doctrine of sin. Now, this will be a test. Do I want to sit on a lecture on sin? Now, if you're absent, I will know. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this extraordinary truth that you stamped, as it were, into our very being and fabric made by God in who we are and what we are. And now in Christ, in union with the image bearer par excellence, we, we are called upon to reflect that image in our speech, in our creativity, in our artistry, in our thought, in our holiness, in our sanctification, in our love for one another, in our neighbor love. In everything that we do, we reflect something of you and that we are created by you and that we, that we are charged with, with uh, expressing in this fallen world something of your beauty. So bless us, uh, we pray, hear us, forgive us all our sins. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.